We've discussed what we think the year ahead holds for investors, but today we'll tell you what would disrupt that view. Part two, here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everyone. It's the week of January 22nd, 2024, and we're back for round two of our annual Black Swans discussion. For a quick refresh, these black swan risks are some outside-of-the-box risks or events that we think, if they occurred, though very unlikely, could disrupt investor consensus in 2024. I want to say that again. We consider these events highly unlikely, highly unpredictable. But if they did occur, they would have a high impact on the global economy, financial markets, even human life. Think COVID-19, the Russian invasion of Ukraine as two modern-day black swan risks. Once again, I'm joined by our very own Macro Mike. Hi, Mike. Which black swan risks are we going to talk about today? Hi, Lauren. So this week, we have another three black swan risks. The first is that the European Union and China enter a trade war. The next is what if the U.S. embraced nuclear energy? And then what would happen if the U.S. mass deported all of its undocumented workers. Ooh, yikes. Those are some big ones. All right, let's do it. I'm ready when you are. So the EU and China enter a trade war. But first, do you remember the U.S.-China trade war in 2019? Oh, man, it almost feels like quainter days at this point, doesn't it? But yeah, totally remember. And at the time, it was a mess. All summer long, markets bounced around as the U.S. and China levied retaliatory trade sanctions against each other. Exactly. And the setup for an EU-China trade war looks the same as the setup of the U.S.-China trade war, a fight over domestic policies. One country views them as economically supportive, and the other views them as unfair trade practices. Now, for some context on this one, China has rapidly emerged as an electric vehicle exporting powerhouse. And this challenges the established order in the global auto industry. Two of China's largest trading partners and competitors, Germany and Italy, are taking note and certainly aren't happy with China carving up their auto market shares. And we know that China leverages three key cost advantages which help maintain its powerhouse status. Low labor costs, government subsidies, and favorable shipping costs, at least relative to some of these other more expensive markets. That's right. And European car companies view these practices as unfair. So they've been pushing the European Union to respond to China by imposing tariffs on Chinese cars and other products like Chinese steel. This would raise the price of Chinese cars and make European cars more competitive across the EU. I think it's fair to say that there's a lot more going on here between the EU, China, and other countries, which makes this risk, though still unlikely, one of the more likely on a relative basis on our list. Electric vehicles equipped with batteries made in China present a supply chain risk. What if there's an issue and no one can get new batteries? As well as a potential security risk. What if self-driving cars are all run by one software and something goes wrong? And So governments are worried about their local industrial powerhouses, but they're also worried about these broader security concerns. Very true. 
But let's focus on the trade fairness side of things because that's where you went first. If the EU did levy some sort of trade protections, China wouldn't like it because it hurts their auto industry. China could respond with punitive tariffs of their own, similar to how China responded to the U.S. tariffs in 2019. And this would then kick off an EU-China trade war. And the trade war between these two trading blocks would be huge. The size of this relationship is over a trillion dollars. Trade with China makes up 15% of total European trade, and trade with Europe makes up 20% of total Chinese trade. If they start levying sanctions against each other, the global financial market would definitely feel it. Yeah, that's trillion with a T, which is a big number. And if anything, the size of that relationship is what makes this risk unlikely relative to other things that could happen in the economy. A trade war is just costly to the nations who wage it. And in the EU and China, both growth has already been weakening. So a trade war may be the last thing that these countries want to deal with. China's stock market just hit a five-year low. You think they really want to get into a trade war? Maybe. Uh, but what do you think, Mike, besides what we've already discussed, might increase the likelihood of this as the year goes on? Sure. So I think it's more likely the EU throws the first punch. The European Commission currently has two anti-subsidy investigations open into the Chinese electric vehicle and steel markets. The results of these later this year could increase the chances of igniting a trade war. Additionally, the European Commission's president, Ursula von der Leyen, her term is up in the summer. She hasn't said if she wants to run again. So if the election results in a more China hawkish European Commission president, the chances of protectionist policies are more likely. Finally, an EU-China trade war would follow the trend of rising protectionism and a growing comfort among governments to resort to protectionist sanctions as a means of economic defense. Yeah, those are some really interesting factors and very well said. So let's think about how it plays out in markets. If the EU and China enter a trade war, it wouldn't just impact the global auto industry. Countries strong in, well, making stuff like electronics and manufactured goods could see a boost as supply chains potentially move away from China. However, Europe's luxury goods market, heavily reliant on Chinese demand, could suffer, especially with potential declines in Chinese tourism to the EU. Also, there's another trade deal between the EU and Mercosur countries like Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. This deal has been stuck for years, but if the EU and China clash over trade, then the likelihood of that EU-Mercosur agreement finally moving forward could rise. Okay, I think we got that one covered. Let's talk about nuclear next and what it would be like if the U.S. finally embraced nuclear as a major power source. Okay, sounds good. But let's start with the big picture. Today... Nuclear power accounts for nearly 20% of the U.S. country's electricity and about half of its carbon-free electricity. In the 70s and 80s, the U.S. was adding a huge amount of nuclear energy capacity, an average of four nuclear power plants a year. But in the early 90s, it dropped off, and now we're barely investing in nuclear here in the U.S. What happened? It's really two events that impacted public perception and policy towards nuclear energy. The first was the Three Mile Accident in 1979. This was the most serious accident in U.S. commercial nuclear power plant history. Although it led to no deaths or injuries to plant workers or members of the nearby community, it brought widespread attention to the safety of nuclear power. This was followed by the Chernobyl disaster in 1986 in the Soviet Union, which further heightened fears. In response to the Three Mile Accident, 
nuclear regulation became more stringent. While these changes were necessary for safety, they also led to increased costs and delays for nuclear power plant construction and operation. We could point to these factors as to what's been holding back nuclear power plant development today. And that's why this would be a black swan risk, but more specifically, a potentially upside black swan risk. The U.S. government and private research companies have continued to pursue nuclear energy and technological advancements that drastically reduce costs and improve safety may be on the horizon. If those advancements herald in the development of smaller, more efficient nuclear power plants, it could revolutionize the industry and ignite a boom in nuclear power plant construction. Exactly. This is a really exciting space I've had my eye on for a while. A lot of nuclear energy research is on reducing the size of nuclear reactors. Some researchers have even designed nuclear reactors the size of a briefcase that could power a small town. The advantage small reactors have is that they overcome the bureaucratic challenges typically associated with power plant production. Additionally, advancements in battery technology, which make carbon-free energy storage more feasible, are increasing the attractiveness of storing nuclear energy. Finally, this is all coming at a time when countries like Germany, traditionally a leader in renewable energy, are struggling to meet their energy needs. What this suggests is that countries are beginning to realize that in order to cut carbon emissions while maintaining sufficient energy supply, nuclear power must be part of the energy mix. 22 countries, including the United States, committed to tripling its nuclear capacity by 2050 at the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference. Well put. Let's tie this back now to an investment framework. If nuclear energy development ramped up, it would support similar industries like uranium processing, nuclear waste management, and nuclear safety technology providers. Additionally, oil importing countries could benefit from falling costs, assuming global oil production continues but prices fall due to decreased relative demand. That's a good point and something to think about. Even if the U.S. could transition to majority nuclear energy, it still likely would pump for oil and gas as it could still produce more efficiently than other oil producing countries. Okay, I think we can tie a bow on that one for now. I really, really like that conversation. Let's turn then to our last black swan risk, which also deals with the U.S., but instead of looking at energy policy, it considers immigration policy. We talked about how black swans can impact economics, politics, and human life. This swan is one of those for sure. And we chose it because in a U.S. election year, there's likely to be a lot of talk on both sides about immigration and what it could look like. So there's all kinds of different options of what that could be. We decided to look at one extreme side of immigration policy, which is what if the U.S. government said for any reason, that's enough. We're deporting every undocumented worker. Yeah, this one's a little provocative, but it's a really interesting risk to consider because it highlights the labor force support the country receives from undocumented workers. First off, mass deportation would be costly. The American Action Forum estimates mass deportation would have a great recession-like impact on the economy, with a potential $1.6 trillion reduction in GDP, or a 5.7% reduction, and cost the government over $400 billion. Wow, that number is really big. It surprises me. Uh, Why would mass deportation be such a big hit to GDP growth? It's not likely that mass deportation of the roughly 8 million undocumented workers in the U.S. would translate into an equivalent number of jobs for American citizens. 
This is due to two factors. The reduction in consumers and workers would shrink the economy and therefore job availability. And the difference in skill and education level limits perfect substitution in the labor market. And what happens when you have a labor shortage? Well, we know that very intimately from the last couple of years, when you have a labor shortage, wages rise, which is a good thing in some ways, but it also contributes to higher inflation and interest rates. Again, something we've felt the challenge of dealing with in this business cycle. So you mentioned consumption would decline too. Roughly 96% of working age undocumented immigrants in the U.S. are employed. So removing their contributions to consumer spending, taxes and other state benefits would have a noticeable impact. I think uh, when we were talking about this, Mike, offline, you said that Arizona offers a good example. That's right. Arizona's experience during the financial crisis offers insight into immigration reform. During that crisis, the state passed strict immigration laws intended to replace undocumented workers with U.S.-born citizens who were struggling to find work during the recession. But less than 10% of those jobs were actually filled by Arizonians. So Arizona's economic recovery lagged behind its neighbors. It's a a really interesting and helpful real-world example. So if the U.S. goes ahead with this policy and it is successfully implemented, what would play out next? I think a second wave of prohibitively expensive labor, especially so soon after the COVID-19 shock, could lead to meaningful investment in automation. But what's less clear are the political ramifications, such as the global trend towards populism. Would people's political affiliations change? Would other countries condemn the U.S. action or actually use them as an excuse to do something similar in their countries? Relationships with migrants' countries of origin could fray meaningfully, potentially increasing the influence of other global powers that weren't taking actions like this. It's There's all kinds of things that are really difficult to anticipate, which is, again, one of the reasons why we anticipate this risk is highly unlikely but highly impactful. All right. I think we've got that one wrapped up. But before we close, Mike, is there any black swan you want to highlight that we discussed but that didn't make our list? Sure. Potentially, Moldova reunites with Romania. The benefits to both nations are there, but it's not too impactful on the global stage. Interesting. All right. Well, I just want to say thanks again to you, Mike, and to the team for putting this together and to our partners as well who are stellar in supporting this outside-of-the-box thinking. Coming up next, this is a pretty quiet week for economic data. We're focused on corporate earnings and looking for clues of how the resilient economic dominoes, including corporate profits, are holding up. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin here with Michael Legalbo. We'll see you next time. Our podcast is produced by Will Tyus, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. 
This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances, and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.